Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's open together to the, uh, the book of Acts after the four Gospels. Fifth book in your New Testament, Acts chapter 2. We open our Bibles here because we believe the Word of God is true and living and able to teach us and correct us and train us in righteousness. And so today we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. We began to look at this chapter last week, but today we look at the majority of the sermon that Peter preached. In today's message, there are three particular characters I want you to watch. One is Peter, the preacher. The other is David, one of his primary illustrations in the sermon. And then the other are the Jews who are listening to the sermon. And as you look at those three characters in the sermon and the narrative account here, um, I guess I want you to also think about yourself as you watch these responses. Now, Peter is interesting because the last time we saw Peter in the Gospels, um, at least most notably, he was denying the Lord Jesus and the rooster crowed, and he was a chicken. He was afraid to stand with Jesus. But after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, and he strengthened him. And he saw him on the shore, and he said, do you love me? And then what did he say to him? Anybody know? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? After you denied me three times, do you love me? He said, I do love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? I do. Tend to my lambs. This preach in Acts chapter 2 is Peter feeding the lambs with boldness, not much timidity. What changed? What changed in Peter? Well, certainly the resurrection was a powerful. Um, proof that everything that Jesus had said in his life, I have to go to Jerusalem, and when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and I will be killed, but after three days, I will rise again, he said, again and again. And in fact, that came true. That would account for some of Peter's confidence that this really is a true message. Jesus died and rose again, and here he is, and he commissioned me to tend to his lambs. But I, I heard someone else say the other reality is what happened in last week's message. The Holy Spirit has descended and filled all of them, and they're full of the Holy Spirit to preach this message and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit came in order that Christ's word, you shall be my, everybody, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And here it is. Peter is standing up right after that to be witness because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit who has come because Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. You get that? And so here he comes preaching. Verse 22, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a fairly bold start to a sermon. Men of Israel, he's calling to those with that title, I think, who knew they had a covenant relationship with God and may have been relying on their covenant relationship with God for their standing with God, but he's about to unsettle them and he's going to preach what we, what we now know as the gospel, the good news about Jesus. I want you to see four things in these opening verses. Number one, that he introduces Jesus of Nazareth, he identifies the place of his birth, As a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now he's appealing to them about this man Jesus and he's he's relying on their knowledge. Not all of them saw everything but they were well aware that this Jesus of Nazareth had performed... um, mighty works, which is a word for miracles, miracles and wonders and signs, and you know it. Now, when you talk to people today and say that Jesus performed miracles, many of them don't know it and don't believe it. But these people to whom he speaks were of close enough proximity in time to the events of Jesus' life that you yourselves know he did these things. Now, what are those three things? Miracles or mighty works, a supernatural work of God doing something through the power that no human could do, and wonders, which implies the sense of awe in all of the people who saw the miraculous works, and then the word signs. You know that Jesus did miracles which led to wonderment in people, and they were signs to attest to who he was and is. Now, I just want you to know that whenever Jesus did miracles, and even the miracles that we're going to see in the book of Acts are meant to be signposts for the work of God that cannot be explained in any other way except God is doing something. And in some people's heart, it results in wonder and in others, skepticism. But the signs point to a spiritual truth. So the only time that Jesus did mighty works, which led to wonder, was because it was a sign to a spiritual truth. Let me illustrate it. When Jesus, in John chapter 6, turned fish and loaves into enough food to feed 5,000 people, that was the miracle, right? But just a few verses later, He then says in John chapter 6, I I am the bread of life. You're seeking me because you saw the signs, but you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves. They weren't really interested in his spiritual truth yet, but only for another meal that he might provide to them. And he says later that I am the bread of life. Or how about Lazarus? Jesus performs a miracle to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the mighty work. But what's the sign? The sign is tied to the teaching that he says of himself. I am the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus always did this, and the audience to whom Peter's preaching knows full well that Jesus did these miraculous works, and they were filled with wonder, but did they see the spiritual truth enough to point them? Many of them did not, but the point of this sermon is to illuminate the very work of God through Jesus that they might believe these things. The second thing I want you to see is in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What's Peter saying here about the crucifixion of Jesus? This is no accident. This is not God's plan B. You have to place yourself into the sandals of the Jews who were standing there for a minute. Peter is saying to them, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Paul restates that in Ephesians. He was crucified before the foundation of the world. It was always in the plan of God that he would have a suffering Savior. So when you read Isaiah 53, you hear this language, surely of the Messiah. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. It was God's plan to do this. He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the condemnation of us brought our peace. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, it was because that was God's plan. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and it fulfilled prophecy. The third thing I want you to see is that Peter's not afraid to say to them, you killed him by the hands of evil men. Okay, imagine preaching and saying you're responsible for the death of Christ. Peter is preaching to this audience of Jews saying you're responsible for the death of Christ. Who, who killed Jesus? Well, Roman soldiers did. And Jewish leaders set him up. And the crowd screamed, crucify him, crucify him. And I know from the Bible's teaching that I crucified Christ, my sins. And I know that ultimately, this was God's plan to put his son to death to save sinners. It's remarkable. And lastly, I just want you to know that the whole message here is God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by death. He conquered death. And what do you have here? You have the whole beautiful story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that we're responsible for his death, but God raised him up, and the gospel of Christ is summarized in these words. Jesus was crucified by the plan of God, and we're responsible, and God raised him up. He's resurrected. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, sort of a summary of all this, saying, I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. This verse summarizes the gospel message that every one of us in the room ought to be able to summarize. Christ lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. That's the good news. Everybody said? Yeah, that's the summary. 
Peter's preaching it to his Jewish audience, and in his preaching to the Jewish audience, he's using illustrations of Old Testament prophecy. And that's why in verse 25, in your text, not on the screen, Peter continues, for David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord. And he goes to the Old Testament in Psalm 16 and says, when David was writing, he knowingly or not knowingly fully was referring to Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I'm not shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. And then verse 27 in your text, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave, to Hades, nor my flesh, uh, my flesh will, uh, or let your Holy One see corruption. Excuse me. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. What's that about? You have made known to me the path of life, and you make me full of gladness in your presence. He's looking back at a psalm that they all would have known, Psalm 16, and said, you will not allow your Holy One to experience corruption. And Peter grabs David's words from Psalm 16 and applies them to Christ and said, it's not David who didn't see corruption, but it's Jesus, the Messiah, who was not abandoned to the grave. He illustrates it further as he goes on, verse 29, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So that text from Psalm 16 isn't about David particularly. Who's it about? It's about Christ. David's saying in Old Testament language something about the resurrection of the chosen one. So then verse 30, being therefore a prophet, referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter replies, Psalm 16, not to David, but to Jesus. Then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of all that, we are witnesses. We we saw that. He's calling upon their firsthand knowledge of being in Jerusalem just two months earlier when Jesus was crucified. Therefore, um, let's see, where am I? Uh, Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father The promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, for those of you who were with us last week, that should take you back to the early part of chapter 2. Because they're saying, hey, the Holy Spirit came, these people are speaking in tongues, they're drunk. Remember that? That's the whole explanation of this sermon. They're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. What you're seeing is the Holy Spirit descending as Joel prophesied, as David prophesied prophesied that the Holy One had to be crucified, but he wouldn't suffer decay. He would be raised up, um, and he was not abandoned to Hades. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and now we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 34, not on the screen, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but Jesus did. And he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's the Messiah. Last phrase, everybody. 
this Jesus you crucified. And what you hear Peter saying is, God was at work in Jesus, allowed him to, be, to suffer and, and be crucified. And you're responsible for his death, but God was in it. And you have this incredible connection of human responsibility for the death of Jesus and God's divine plan. And he, God has made him both Lord and Christ. That ends the sermon. Okay? The weight of this for a Jew in that day would have been staggering. Because Peter reaches to the Old Testament, ties it together, and says of what God was doing in Old Testament writings was fulfilled in Jesus, and it was God's plan, and you're responsible, and it didn't keep him, but he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is in heaven waiting until he makes his enemies his footstool. Now, if you were just accused of crucifying Jesus, as Peter implies, all these listening Jews, and you know that he actually did die, was buried, did rise again, did ascend into heaven, the Holy Spirit came because he ascended, you're seeing all the manifestations that the Holy Spirit is here because you cannot dispute the fact that all these people are speaking in tongues that they've never spoken before so that all the people present can hear the gospel in their language. These Jews who are listening to Peter know that something is going on here. God made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they had to feel the weight of it which is exactly what the next verse says. Verse 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? They knew that what Peter was saying was the whole message of God's plan in Jesus, and they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Let's talk about that for a minute. But I want to go to a, a slide. What, what does it mean to be cut to the heart? The, the word actually means to pierce or to stab. And when they heard that message by Peter, it simply says they had inside of them this overwhelming sense of the, the word we would use is of deep, weighty conviction on the inside of them that I'm responsible for the death of Jesus. We put that conviction slide up, Monica. Conviction. They were cut to the heart, pierced on the inside. Let's think about this for a moment. That, that word is like, implies that they had a sudden awakening to their own guilt um, for having crucified Jesus and with the awareness that he's going to return again and make his enemies which certainly would include those who were responsible for his death, his footstool. And I just want you to know that one of the things that's happening here when they say, what should we do? I, I bet there was some cry in that. Like, what should we do? Who's bringing that about on the inside of them? This Holy Spirit. You get conviction by the Holy Spirit. Conviction is a sense of ah, before God that something's not right. 
And I just want to say, in 2020, we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit points out what is wrong inside of us that only God can make right. And they were deeply convicted on the interior of their soul. And conviction exposes what's wrong, what's evil. It, can, it, it reveals our sin. So conviction of the Holy Spirit is good. Okay, let me say it again. The, conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit to convict the inside of me that something's not right in me with God is good. If it is. I'm not talking about false guilt. I'm talking about a kind of conviction on the inside that I, I'm not right with God. And that's the function of the Holy Spirit. And very often he does it through the preaching that's happening right here in Acts chapter 2, which includes the, the, the Word of God, which is why Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is able to get you sitting here on January 26, 2020, thinking you never expected to come to church to hear anything that would pierce the inside of you. You're just marching through orders. And all of a sudden, God comes and says, I'm talking to you. And I'm, I don't mean you, you. I mean we. When I was 20 years old, I was in the balcony at Moody Bible Institute. And I had been through a really difficult personal time, and I was far from God while in Bible college. And I remember a Scottish preacher by the name of Stephen Olford preaching out of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, which says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through which, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast. Oh, you know what? I was a cocky 20-year-old man. And I was boasting. And I was proud. And when I heard that preach... I remember where I was sitting and I remember feeling this conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life as a Christian that I was proud and that I was thinking of my mission for my life and I heard these words, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ. And it was such a transformational experience that, that literally the rest of my life journey has been marked by that decisive moment of conviction by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's conviction. Even if you're a Christian. Maybe especially if you're a Christian. Because we're prone to wander. And be proud. And I hope that it will always be our demeanor 
that we might hear the word of God and be cut to the very interior of our lives and say to God, what do you want me to do? And then we would do it. You know, when you get convicted by the Holy Spirit, whether it's here or whether it's in your own reading or you're driving in your car and you hear something and you just feel the weight of conviction that something is not quite right and you ignore it and you suppress it and we say, I am not going there. What happens on the inside is the Bible talks about becoming hard and hardened and calloused and you get deceived by the deceitfulness of sin that leads to a hardening and a, and a crusting over of your heart so that you no longer feel conviction. And I just want to say to you, conviction of the Holy Spirit is a good thing. We need it in our lives. And it's what the Holy Spirit came to do, to convict the world of sin, to convict the world of what is righteous, and to convict the world of a coming judgment, and that's okay. We need that. I was reading in the paper about a church in our town that has a really um, blasphemous doctrine, and the, and the message under their church is this, no guilt, no hell, no sin, just God within. No sin, no guilt no hell, just God within. Now, I've, I've researched them. And I actually could say, at some point, I could say of myself, I have no guilt. My guilt is gone. Right? We say, amen, Jesus bore my guilt. And no hell for me because I know I have eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. And no sin, I actually am forgiven of my sins. And God within, yeah, in a sense, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But that's not what they mean. They mean that you have a divine potential for um, a divine spark. God, you are God. And there is no such thing as hell. There is no such thing as sin. And there is no such thing as guilt. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we actually are sinners. And sometimes we need to be convicted but Christ does forgive our sins, and he releases us from that. And we just want to say, when Peter preached this message full of the Spirit and preaching the Word of God, there was a conviction in the hearts of those people saying, what should I do to be saved? Let's follow and see what Peter says to them. What should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself you have to hear this this is a message of the gospel that's for everybody it's it's for you it's for your children it's for everyone who's far off come and hear this and he uses this word the word Repent and be baptized. Before we look at repentance, let me just say that he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. In verse 44, he calls them believers. It's clear that they believe this message, but he asks them to repent and be baptized because baptism, again, for a Jew would have been a dramatic, humbling experience Baptism was for non-Jews, and now these Jews were going to be baptized as a way of saying, I've died to myself, and I live to Christ, and I receive him. It's a dramatic statement. But let's think about repentance for a minute. 
repentance. Let's look at that slide. Repentance originally meant an afterthought. Like I'm marching down a road and this is my path. And it's like, oh, this might not be the right path. I have an afterthought. That's how it originally was thought. And so if you're marching down a road and the afterthought is this is the wrong path, what do you do? You turn around. And that's what it came to be meant. To repent is to change directions, to turn. So what should we do? Change directions. Repentance. Change your mind about this. Change your mind about Jesus. And not just change your mind, but obviously it implies a change of mind that leads to a change of, of action. And it implies that that action will be changed in such a way that you will start moving in a new direction. So you experience conviction. And then you respond by saying, I turn to you, Jesus, and I change the direction of my life. And true repentance always turns away from sin to the forgiving one, Jesus, and embraces him by faith and believes in him. That's what repentance is. Does repentance, similar to conviction, happen ongoingly in the life of a follower of Jesus? Okay? Yes. Yes, it does. Because do you ever turn away from Jesus in your day-to-day life? Do we, are we prone to wander? I am. And when I suddenly find myself in a place, like thinking in a way that does not reflect my new life in Jesus, whether it's immoral or whether it's pride or whether it is uh, anger or bitterness, and I know that's not the way of Jesus, and I feel the conviction, I don't want to say to that, I'm not listening to you right now because that crusts over my heart and makes me callous. I want to say, yes, Lord, I hear you, and I turn. And true repentance is a turning to the Lord. False repentance, when you get, if I get caught doing something and I just say, oh, I got caught, I'm really sorry. That's false repentance. False repentance dreads the consequences of the sins. True repentance dreads the sin and the one whom I offend in my sin. Repentance says, God, I know against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it's what David said after a year of walking in unrepentance. Against you and you only have I sinned. And so he turned in repentance. So here's the verse that I pulled from chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You turn back, there's forgiveness. But I don't want you to think what I'm saying this morning is that when, when we're talking about conviction and repentance that God expects us to dwell in a place of self-loathing because of where we are. But by faith, we turn to the one who fully forgives us by his grace, and that's why 
in chapter 3 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I'm walking away from the Lord and I turn and repent and I walk back to God and what's waiting for me? Times of refreshing. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Why? Because I turn to the Lord. This is the message that's being preached by Peter that calls for a repentance, calls for turning to him. Verse 40 says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And I imagine that there were a lot of questions. He had a Q&A there. We only have a little bit of the sermon, but they're asking him questions and he's talking to them. And with many other words, he says, you should get saved from this crooked generation. Why? How? Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, follow Jesus. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church that day 3,000 souls. Man. I dream of that in Boulder. And you chuckle nervously because is that possible? This is the only message that will do it. There is no other message. This is God's plan to save the world. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin that the only answer for your sin is Jesus and in Jesus you can be fully forgiven. So turn to him that times of refreshing may come. So there's conviction, there's repentance, and then there is salvation. Salvation. Earlier in chapter 2, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved is a quotation from Joel that Peter uses. In chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. This is the message. This is the gospel. It is the very good news that God gave to us to preach until he returns. And I just want you to have in your heart today a sense that this bold proclamation in in the first century to Jews who were there feeling the weight of conviction that my sins are responsible for the death of Jesus responded overwhelmingly under conviction and repentance and followed the Lord in baptism and found the forgiveness of their sins and then went to all the world to preach this message. I want us to go preach this message. Every one of us in the room who've walked with Jesus for any number of years ought to be able to say this. We we, we ought to be able to say to people, this is the message of Christ. And and you say, well, I I can't convince people that that message is true. You know what I would say to that? Right. It isn't your job. You proclaim. The Holy Spirit convicts brings new life. Are there any questions? All right, I'd like you to stand with me here and in classic. Let's stand together. This is a message that needs to be preached in our city. We're just going to close our service today by asking God to give us boldness of Peter, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to share this message in every place that God sends us. So let's bow our heads together and think of somebody in our life, maybe to whom we might share this good news that that God has made Jesus Christ both the Lord and the Messiah and the Savior 
And right now, our Father, we're thinking of people in our life who need this transforming message. And I pray that by the grace of God, you will empower us by this same Holy Spirit to be bold, to share this sweet message of forgiveness, of life change. And I pray for whatever conviction has come this morning, that there will be a a soon release of forgiveness, that conviction would lead us to our knees, where we would find in Jesus times of refreshing and forgiveness and healing and newness. Wherever we have become hardened against you, I pray that your Holy Spirit will soften our souls, our hearts, and change our thinking in a spirit of repentance that we would turn to the Lord. Do this for your glory and our joy, we pray, and we'll give you all the praise. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ send us out into the world until all the world knows that you have made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus, whom we proclaim today. And in whose name we've all prayed together, everybody said, amen. Our prayer teams are here, and the cafe is open. We'll see you soon.